Welcome to Opsy, a podcast for people doing Opsy work in tech. I'm your host, Carol Griffin. And every month, I dig into what Opsy work really is by talking to an operations pro who has something really cool to teach us. In a traditional part of ops like HR or finance, or a newer specialty like no-code ops or marketing ops. Thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored by Runner, a platform that connects outstanding operational talent with inclusive companies. Today, we're talking to Christina Mendoza, an operations pro who started her ops career at unicorns like Snap, Uber, and Salesforce, before ultimately joining the Obama Foundation as an operations manager. But before all of that, if you'll allow me to turn back the clock a little bit, Christina and I were two artsy college students going to undergrad together in Chicago, where we took some of the same creative nonfiction classes. The funny thing is, we definitely knew each other back then. It was a small program, but I don't think we ever actually hung out or really got to know each other. It wasn't until like a dozen years later that we were able to reconnect. It was the height of COVID lockdown back in 2020, and I was speaking at a virtual conference about remote onboarding. And lo and behold, there was my old classmate in the Zoom chat. We were able to reconnect and bond over the fact that we both ended up going from art school to doing operations work in tech, and also our shared love of nonfiction and maybe also nerding out about Latin American history. So without further ado, let's hear from Christina herself. Thanks so much for joining me today, Christina. Really excited to chat and talk more about ops with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for for this conversation. It's gonna be yeah, great. Yeah, I feel like if you had told like college Christina and college Caro that we would be here talking about our careers in ops and tech, we would be like, "What do you mean? <laughs> like, what? Exactly. What is that? Find it for me. I don't even know what that is. I'm an exactly. artist in school. <laughs> yep, yep. I I was too busy thinking about like my future as like artiste and like being on tour and doing all this other stuff that ops is not something I was thinking about at all. Well, I feel like that's so true for so many of the guests and just like so many people I know in ops, right? Like it's rarely something we study in school. It's something, you know, we we stumble into. And so I feel like that's a perfect segue to to start at the beginning of your story. Tell us a little bit about you and, and how you fell into operations. Yeah. Oh man. Speaking of college, Christina. So yeah, like, like you said, I, I was at Columbia college, Chicago. I was focused on entertainment and media management. And so I had this idea. I was also like, I don't know, dating a lot of fanboys at the time. And so I think I had this idea of being on tour and like running festivals and, you know, the tour van life. Like, I, I think that that's what I really wanted when I moved to Chicago but I think over the years, it just kind of, I don't know, I fell out of it a little bit. You get older, you want health insurance, you <laughs> want some stability. It also did help living in Chicago because I very much, I'm a Chicago girl. Like I am a Midwestern girl. My roots are here. And so it kind of got to a point of like, you either move to the West Coast or the East Coast mm-hmm. to like do these music careers. And that's just not really what I wanted to do. So I was doing a lot of event work right out of college and it would just be like freelance stuff here or there, whatever shows were coming into town. Mm -hmm. And I was also doing a lot of interning. So I was interning with Pitchfork, with a local PR agency. And so still had this big idea of like music being like my main driving force for what I wanted to do. But on the off season, I was also working in restaurants and I was like helping out with hosting. So I had this like very customer service side, but was also raising my hand anytime. I don't know if 
we had an accountant leave and suddenly mm-hmm. someone needed to do payroll for the next few months. So like I raised my hand to learn payroll. I raised my hand. <laughs> yeah. To do like for punishment, living on a tour bus and running payroll. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's exactly how it was. And so was just raising my hand for a lot of things mm-hmm. and was suddenly getting this like kind of weird skill set. Like I knew how to run events. I could like manage crazy things a lot of ambiguity restaurants super ambiguous like anything that could go wrong is probably going to go wrong on a Friday night service and so eventually was trying to figure out like what what does this look like down the line and I had been working in restaurants for a while had been doing events for a while and then a recruiter reached out about a role at Uber and so then I you know ended up transitioning into the tech life for a while what a wild transition, I'm sure. And especially like really interesting because I feel like you don't hear a lot about recruiters contacting for like ops roles, you know, especially for more exactly. like entry and mid-level roles. Like that's just not something, mm-hmm. yeah, that I hear a lot. And so so tell me more about that. <laughs> you, yeah. you ended up going to Uber. Okay. Yeah, it was it was interesting too because I, I don't know, I had, I looked at my resume and I was like, oh, I've just been a hostess here. I've been like office managing, but it's been like, accounts payable like this isn't this isn't what you're looking for but the skill set was very much aligned with what a lot of like office manager mm-hmm. workplace operations look like there's a sense of hospitality in it there's you know I'm still serving some sort of customer support role uh, but there's also a lot of logistics going into it and so the event planning stuff like really came into place understanding a budget really came into place. (laughs) There was just like all of these skills that kind of aligned with it. And so yeah, recruiter reached out. I thought that it was a joke at first. Did they reach out on LinkedIn or like via email? They reached out. Yeah. Via LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. And it was definitely like at the beginning of, I don't know, this is probably 2014, I want to say. Okay. Very much. Yeah. Early especially in Chicago, like that's when Mm -hmm. like all the tech companies are starting to like really build their offices out here. And it was specifically for Uber's customer support center. So it was going to be a 24 seven. Yeah. 365 state of the art, like customer support center. When I first got there, it was roughly like 60 staff. And then within the year, I would say we moved up to like 350. So it was very much like, (laughs) wow, that's, you know, that's a it's big huge. increase in staff. And also I like my eyes immediately bugged out at 24, seven, 365. Like exactly. Yeah. The operational challenge in that alone. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. had a job and cut was, out for you. And I was like the only one. And so now sometimes I look at even with my small team now, I'm like, oh, there's three of us though. Like I <laughs> was doing all of this on my own. You know, there's plenty of crazy stories. Everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong in that role in one way or another, whether something one time we had the HVAC flood, like another time, (laughs) you know, we've had like security scares. Like it was just, it was an interesting time for Uber and it was an interesting time to be there. And it was a lot of growth, but I think it really kind of set the stage for how my career would go moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it was really just a big learning experience. So I I think that I while I had this like interesting skill set before I got to Uber, Uber really solidified like okay, this is what you're going to be kind of doing for the rest of your life now. Like this is you're good at this. Like you don't know what this is yet, but you but you are good at this and you'll figure it out. So yeah, yeah that was that was my time in Uber and then tech I love just that. kind of yeah, tech just kind of followed on after that for a while. 
you know, I was going to ask you, I was like, so, you know, so many of us do kind of, as we've already talked about, stumble into ops. When did you realize you were an ops person? And it sounds like it was at Uber where you were like, okay, yeah, this is where I can keep raising my hand and, and learning new things. And it sounds like it was such a great role that really, I guess, like was the next step after having all those roles that where you raised your hand and got your feet wet in a lot of things. And then this was yeah. like a very formalized version of doing all of the things and and trying yep. all the things and and yeah, like a great foundational role. And so I know you went on to Snap and Salesforce after that. And I would love to talk to you a little bit more about like facilities because this isn't something yeah. we really dug into on the podcast yet. And it's funny that you started kind of in events because I think if I look back, that was the first ops job I had that I didn't realize was an ops job yep. was like planning yep. large scale events at Columbia, our alma mater. And like, those are ops that the things that I haven't had to touch since then, like that facilities, that security, the like janitorial catering mm-hmm. things. And so, yeah, we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about like facilities and the role of facilities and kind of like what goes into all of that. Yeah. Ooh, I love that question. And it's so layered too, because I think over the years, we just keep learning more and more about like how place, like place is such an important part of everything right like yeah it's it's a core memory of where you grew up it's a core memory of like where you first worked place is super important and so I think that that also translates really well into like workplace and how you know you create the environment that folks can work effectively in and not so much like work harder but like work smarter like you want Mm -hmm. folks to feel like they have everything they need and I think it was really Again, like going back to Uber, they had such such a strong workplace operations team. It was massive. Uh, They had a team that was just overseeing like food and beverage, a team that was just overseeing the leases, just the design components. We had entire workbooks on like, here's what the Uber design like interior should look like. And so it was something that I nerded out about a lot. My mom is a graphic designer. And so I grew up always kind of like thinking like, oh, color schemes, like, oh, Uh this should look like this. And I feel like that graphic design definitely translated into like our home design too. But (laughs) it just seems like, I don't know, it was an exciting thing to start learning. And then I kind of just took that along with me to Snapchat and to Salesforce. While I was at both of those roles, we were also going through like some larger construction projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so while I had helped do some construction at Uber, it was really at, I would say Snap, and then mostly at Salesforce where I got to see like the interior design process kind of like come to life and like what workplace could actually look like. Uh, Yeah. And so Snap, I think they were still trying to like figure out what their design would look like. But then at the time, Salesforce had had an older branding that was kind of this almost like Aloha themed uh, tropical themed throughout their offices, which was interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, it like aligned very well with what they, you know, were kind of doing at the time. They yeah. called the Salesforce Ohana, like it was okay. this big, you know, Hawaiian theme thing. But then they were moving to this like Dreamforce trailhead design. And so a lot of the offices started going through like large repaints, or mm-hmm. we were completely redesigning what the kitchens looked like to make them more functional for staff who maybe wanted to grab coffee and also have a meeting like right next to the kitchen area. And so it was, it was really interesting to see the thought and care that Salesforce put into their workplace design. Mm -hmm. And I think while I was seeing that at Uber and at Snap, I think while I was at Salesforce, it was when I really started to get involved with it and really got to kind of help like put the pieces together. Like these are the vendors we're going to need. 
This is the exact coffee machine we're going to need. Here's what our snack program can look like. And so like, really, I feel like this is going to come across as sarcastic, but like the really important decisions, right? Like, you know, like you're responsible for the coffee maker, Christina, like no pressure. Yes. (laughs) No pressure at all. If it went down, it was the end of the world. And mind you, like this was the building that we were at had seven floors and then we had two additional offices nearby. So it was like, you know, not a small large. Yeah. Not a small footprint at all. And we were a small team. And I think that's the one thing that like workplace operations as a whole, you know, they tend to be smaller teams, but they tend to get a lot done. And I think that's what I also have always really enjoyed is like, you know, we're scrappy. Like yeah. we are the scrappy kids at the party and like we're going to figure out like how to get things done and make it work. And sometimes there's going to be band-aids involved, but we'll figure it out later on. So yeah, it's, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I would have never pictured this conversation going into like, yeah, like workplace design and interior yeah. design even, you know, that's like yeah. a whole branch of kind of the facility space that I had never considered. So I yeah, um, love, yeah, learning more about that for sure. Yeah. And I will say too, it's kind of evolved even more over the last couple of years where, especially as we start returning to work, we're also seeing this like DIB, the B, like DEI, diversity, inclusion, equity, diversity, equity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we're seeing that really come into place. And, you know, we're starting to discuss more about like what a neurodivergent space could look like, what quiet spaces look like in offices. And oh, wow. so- yeah, it's it's interesting. The snacks are important, but also let's start looking at like what yeah. a quiet workspace looks like too. Absolutely. And like how does inclusivity like transfer into the workspace, right? Like if you're especially, yeah. you know, when rightly so, when tech companies get all this pushback about like being yep. inclusive and, you know, hiring, you know, people that are different. It's like, okay, like you can you can do that for this, like and yeah, maybe your staff photo looks diverse but like how are you supporting those people when they get there and it's exactly I think it particularly you know like the neurodivergent folks like so so rarely are they like really considered in the office floor plan so yeah love to hear that 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 that's happening I feel like I could do a whole nother episode on that maybe maybe we'll circle back on the blog about that but you know so you obviously spent a few years in these big tech companies what drew you to nonprofits and and the Obama Foundation specifically yeah oh man so this was a big timing thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're kind of hitting that like 2016, 2017 period. And I think I knew that I wanted to be at a place where it was a little more mission driven. Mm-hmm. And I think I was getting some semblance of that at Salesforce. They do mm-hmm. a lot of really great work with like volunteering. They encourage their employees to do a lot of volunteer hours. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I wanted something more. I think that I... I wanted to feel like I was helping some community, my community, the national community. And so it just so happened that the Obama Foundation was hiring an office manager role and I'd been doing facilities for a while. And I was like, I I would do office management again. Like I could, Mm -hmm. I could do this. I also had had some aspirations of maybe going into politics, maybe going to campaigning, but wasn't sure if I was ready for like that life. And so this was like a good middle ground. Were you also obsessed with the West Wing at one point in your life? Because like, I just feel like I also definitely consider the the politics uh, Mm -hmm. and like both like 
the political person in me and then also like the in like the mission driven person and also the ops person in me is like yes. campaign ops that's a whole other ball game a whole <laughs> other thing yeah and I and it was one of those things too where I would see shows like that <laughs> yeah and I would be like I could do that I can figure that out. Like, give me that problem. I could figure that problem out. Yeah. Yeah. And this seemed like a good, like, middle ground, right? Like, I wasn't completely going into, like, campaign world, but I also was, like, going to be working with a lot of former campaign folks. And so ended up at the Obama Foundation in 20, like, fall of 2018. Okay. And it was a lot of folks that had previously been on the Hillary Clinton campaign that had previously been in the Obama administration but also a lot of folks that were coming from other nonprofits or mm-hmm. some folks like me that were coming from tech or large real estate firms. And so it was an exciting move because I was suddenly dealing with like a whole new group of people that I think also like me were looking for something that was very mission driven and mm-hmm. very aligned with their values as well. So, you know, I think the nonprofit world was something that I had considered for a while, but didn't know how it fit into that with my skill set. And this seemed yeah. like the perfect segue into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think there's two like, you know, I have only I have very limited experience in nonprofits. Like, you know, I did like the development internships and stuff in, in college yeah. looking for kind of like, yeah, how do I find mission driven work? Right. And but it feels like there's such a difference too between like a really small scrappy nonprofit and something like the Obama yeah. Foundation. And I would imagine just from like the outside, it feels like, you know, the Obama campaigns and administration had such a reputation for being tech forward. What do you think like the difference is between working at kind of a more established, bigger nonprofit like the Obama Foundation versus like something a little smaller, scrappier? Yeah, I love that question. We we are definitely like very tech savvy. Well, mm-hmm. Most of us are very tech savvy. (laughs) (laughs) There is sometimes a learning curve sometimes, but you know, for the most part, we do function a lot like a startup. I think that there's a lot of different reasons for that, right? Like Mm -hmm. we are still figuring out our infrastructure. We're just now hitting the point of like really growing as an organization, but there's still a lot of the same, a lot of the same standards that you would have, especially in workplace Mm -hmm. uh, and facilities management. A lot of those same standards really come into play at the foundation as well, because we want to provide, you know, a a reliable, efficient and like smart space for our staff, not only our staff, but also our guests to like really mm-hmm. enjoy. We do have a lot of community members that come through. We have a lot of programming that takes place in the space as well. And so there is this additional level of guest service and mm-hmm. radical hospitality that comes out when we're trying to like focus on, you know, supporting our staff, essentially. Yeah, I have like four follow-up questions and my brain is like, oh, what, what comes yeah, next? So of course. wait, radical hospitality, let's start there. How do you define radical yeah. hospitality? Because I feel like I love it already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, I, and this is where I wish I could like tap in one of my colleagues who's yeah. working on the Obama <laughs> Presidential Center. Uh-huh. Uh, because as they're building that out, that's something that they're thinking of constantly. Like how can we provide radical hospitality in the space? And so it's going above and beyond and really really being mindful that hospitality looks different for every single person, right? Like Mm -hmm. some people, you know, may not want the over-communication piece or they may want that. There's also, you know, with disabilities, like being mindful of what that looks like and how you take care of anyone who has a disability coming into your space. I want to say too, that it comes from Disney was the oh. original creators. I, I want to say cool. it's a Disney, okay. a Disney piece that like we've, we've started to really look into, mm-hmm. but that is something that 
you know, we're just keeping in mind as we build out the Obama Presidential Center. And even as we continue to grow as an organization, like what does radical hospitality look like for our team? And how can we ensure that folks really feel comfortable in the space, really feel welcome here, and also have everything that they need to, you know, whether it's coming through our future museum, or whether it's walking through our offices, they really feel like they belong. And they, you know, have a sense of belonging while they're in our spaces. Yeah. Um, and it feels like that goes so hand in hand with the workplace operations and that experience yep. and that cultivating a sense of belonging for everyone, right? Because like you said, the it, hospitality looks different for everyone. And so how do you yes. bake that in? That's very cool. Hey, Hopsy friends. This is Lauren from Runner. The power to curate your career is here with Hire Runner. At Runner, we match fractional operations talent known as runners with inclusive companies. Our runners not only get access to a suite of benefits, but they get to pick their schedule, set their pay rate, and work with companies they're passionate about supporting. No more cheap gigs, horrible bosses, or miserable schedules. Visit HireRunner.co to apply today. So I feel like I actually should ask, how do you think about the mission of the Obama Foundation? Like what kind of programming are y'all doing? I feel like that's important context for this conversation. Yeah, definitely. So the Obama Foundation is guided by the core belief that ordinary people working together can change history. And it's our overall mission to inspire folks to take action, to empower them, and to help them change their world for the better and to connect them so that they can achieve more together than alone. And with that, we have a number of different programs available. We have our leaders program, which pairs up different civic engagement leaders to move their work forward. Some folks have different nonprofits that they've just started. Others are doing like really amazing research and helping out with their communities. So you're definitely doing a lot. So I get why you would definitely need a like multifunctional space that can can do a lot of different things. So, you know, pivoting a little bit, tell me about what does it mean to be an operations manager at the Obama Foundation? Are there like multiple operations managers? Do you have different focuses? Like, how is that? How is it all structured? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's something that we're still learning and figuring out. Mm -hmm. uh, so right now I am the only operations manager at the foundation but I mostly focus on infrastructure and all of the internal operations. So we do have a few other teams that have operations roles, um, mm -hmm. such as our programming team. So they're running the operations of what our programs look like out in, out in the real world. But then with the presidential center that we're building, we also do have an operations team there that is figuring out what the future operations are going to look like on site at the presidential center. So that work is getting done and we're starting to scale for a lot of those roles. Mm -hmm. um, but our work in particular for my team, on the infrastructure side, we're assisting a lot of teams with, you know, just general day-to-day -day either office management, mm -hmm. resources. We overlap a lot with like people operations as well. We're working very closely with our finance team, our IT team. And so and our legal team as well. So we're working really closely with a lot of different people in administrative teams to, I don't know, kind of just really set the culture and the engagement for the foundation as a whole. We have, you know, a mission to really build our leaders up like externally, but we also want to focus on building our leaders up internally as well. So our team partners a lot with a lot of additional teams to provide the resources needed for, for that work. 
Yeah. So yeah, really the, the ops that are keeping things moving internally. Um, so, you know, with that, I know that you spent a lot of time thinking about kind of what work looks like, not only, I mean, you spent your whole career trying to figure out what is work <laughs> and workplace look like, it sound like, but particularly mm-hmm. in this post COVID world, what does hybrid look like? And what is like a safe workplace look like? And so mm-hmm. would love to dig into that a little bit with you, because I guess maybe starting, you know, pre COVID was the Obama Foundation, what was like the hybrid or remote availability, I guess, was it primarily yeah. correlated? Yeah. So we, it was interesting because we definitely had workspaces. We had some co-working spaces in the West coast and on the East coast. Yeah. And then our two main offices, Chicago's our headquarters and we have a larger office in DC. I say larger, but it's really only like 60 people. So (laughs) probably smaller. It's funny because like to me, that is a large office (laughs) because like, I'm like very like early stage startup person and I'm like 60, you know, that's when I'm like too many people. someone else hire Christina like uh, <laughs> um, so it's just funny how our definitions change so like wait how big is the Chicago office now Chicago office we're about oh god I think like 120-ish 130 oh, okay okay so yeah, yeah definitely the headquarters so definitely I interrupted you so like so you had no, some working but like you know yeah so two offices people worked remotely or from the road like pretty frequently we had a lot of stuff traveling all the time and there was like, I think it was very dependent on your team as well. Like some mm-hmm. teams always in the office, always had like back-to-back meetings. I think if you supported an executive member, that was kind of the norm. But okay. we also had a lot of teams that had a lot more flexibility. One thing that I've really enjoyed about working here is that, you know, we understand that people have lives outside of the office. People have kids, people have passions, people have things that they want to do. And so you know, it never, even pre-COVID, it never felt like you needed to be at your desk all the time. If you needed to stay home because you were having a couch delivery, that's fine. Like work from home, you know, as long as things are getting done in the office, that's, that's all that matters. And usually we would have like backup or something if someone needed to be on site. Exactly. Um, that's how yeah. it should be. I like wish that wasn't exactly. such a revolutionary concept, you know, yeah. stuff's getting done. You know, we're hitting yeah. our goals. Exactly. And, and we couch now. We're all and good, we have a, you know? Yeah, where everything is fine. Nothing is on fire. Yeah, and so we were doing a lot of, like, Google Meets and mm-hmm. Zoom calls anyway, like, pre-COVID. And okay. so when we needed to go remote, it just kind of seemed like a, oh, okay, like, business as usual, but now I'm just doing it in my sweatpants. Not the worst. So, you know, that part was an upgrade, I think, for a lot of us. <laughs> that, exactly, exactly. We already yeah. talked about our, you know, our business up top and party on the bottom outfits exactly. today. Yeah. So it's, it's, the, <laughs> it's the way of the future, business on top. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so you transition to, I assume, an all remote for a while there workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're two years into this thing. How has work as normal changed since then? And kind of how have you been involved in, in shaping what that looks like? Yeah, yeah. It's been a whirlwind to say the least. I think we've had at least like three rescheduled office reopenings. Mm. And so the first one, I think we were supposed to go back in November of 2021, held off. There was probably one that was supposed to come sooner, but I wasn't assisting with that one quite Mm -hmm. yet. Then, yeah, we were supposed to return in January. That got pushed back. And then finally, we ended up reopening on May 2nd of 2022. I will say, yeah. And I will say that we were definitely on the more conservative side. We Mm -hmm. 
had folks like going into the office as needed, if they needed to print things, if they needed to just work out the space, it was available. Um, but we worked really closely with our staff and we asked a lot of questions. We wanted to gauge how people were feeling before we forced everyone to go back to the office without any yeah. core goals of being in the office. You know, We also have a lot of staff that have young kids or that have immunocompromised family members or mm-hmm. they themselves are immunocompromised. So there was definitely a sense of needing things to be as flexible as possible for staff and also wanting to have a clear understanding of like, why do people need to be in the office? Yeah. And I think that's something that we're still figuring out. I will say mm-hmm. that we haven't perfected the the return to office yeah. anything. I don't think a lot of people have, but I, I think the one piece that I'm very proud of with this is that we have done a lot to ensure that staff feel safe mm-hmm. and that they feel comfortable and that they do feel like they can take time away like if you know if they do unfortunately come down with covid they can take time away from their work or if they need to take care of a family member they can do that so ensuring that the flexibility is in place but then we're also providing a space for people to come work was was a pretty high priority yeah so you know it sounds like you kind of got pulled into this big project you know somewhere along the way of thinking about reopening and you know this isn't something that like we people have had to do like our industry had not had to figure this out before in the same way that you know it had to be figured out this time so you know and like that's not an uncommon place for ops people to find themselves like trying to trying to create a new wheel I guess but like this just feels particularly challenging particularly as you try to think about understanding you know the medical needs here and like the science involved so how did you I guess like how did you get looped into this (laughs) or roped into it and how did you go about approaching you know getting yourself up to speed and wrapping your head around what this should look like yeah ooh, so much reading Uh, (laughs) so much reading I will say early on in the pandemic I think our team well, I know that our team was definitely the team that was the most attached to our phones and any single COVID update that came in. Okay. It's actually funny, right before everything shut down, we were in DC and we had scheduled a meeting with the Gates Foundation. They've already scaled. They've gone through like uh-huh. a lot of the stuff that we're just beginning to go through as an organization. And we were meeting with their operations team. And, you know, that team's probably like 30, 40 people, something okay. large. And they're talking to us about like, oh, yeah, we have sanitation stations set up for COVID-19. We didn't even know what COVID-19 was at this point. <laughs> like, we just knew yeah. it as like the coronavirus. This was when like the Cardi B meme was like around. That was like the <laughs> most that we knew about COVID at this point, right? Okay. Yeah. And so they were talking to us about like sanitation stations and like getting things prepped and like if we need to go remote. And we're like looking at them like, what are you guys talking about? Like, do we do we need to worry about this? Yeah. Two weeks oh, no. later. Yeah, like, in that then, moment, I'm like, yeah. Do you just like go along with it? Do you like admit that you have no idea what we're talking about? <laughs> we we kind of just went along with it, and then I just remember us walking out and being like, oh, I wonder if we should start getting concerned about this. And then you know, as operations mm-hmm. folks do, we all go back to the hotel that we're staying at, and we start you know ordering supplies. We start getting some face masks. We start getting some hand sanitizer. Things are already starting to run out, so we're just like, okay, let's just order as much as we can, and we'll just keep them on site at the offices, figure it out. And then by the following week, we were starting to have conversations with our executive leadership team on what this could look like and how we should start planning for it. And then two weeks after was when everything shut down. So it was just like a very quick Happened pace. fast. Yeah. I Happened feel like we all had fast. that conversation where we're like, yep. wait, should we worry about this? 
Like everyone has that moment, you know, I will always remember going to the movies. I was in Bangkok when COVID hit and like I went to a movie theater and they took my temperature and it was the first time anyone had like taken my temperature for COVID prevention. And me and my friend looked at each other like, wait, is this like a real thing? You know, and then two weeks later booking a last minute flight back to Mexico, like, you know, wild. Um, So yeah. yeah, Okay. Well, I'm riveted with this story. Can please continue? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we, you know, we shut down and then- I will say my my partner in crime, Amber, she was our DC office manager at the time. And I was the Chicago office manager. We were just attached to our phones. Like, and it was mm-hmm. one of those things where, you know, looking back on it, like maybe I should have detached a little bit, but we were watching these cases. We were going back and forth between our team and then like the executive leadership team and cry- trying to, you know, navigate this when no one has ever navigated something like this before yeah and so then obviously you know I think everyone kind of knows the story like two weeks turns into two months which turns into like two years Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't until oh man I I would say it wasn't until probably November that we finally uh November of 2021 that we finally got some assistance from the University of Chicago which we have a lot of close partnerships with just given that you know, we, we are located in Hyde Park in Chicago. <laughs> I'm like uh, nodding along. And then I realized this might be like a very Chicagoan thing of us where we're like, yes, yes. Oh, like, <laughs> Obama. Yeah, obviously Hyde Park, Obama Foundation in Hyde Park, yeah. University of Chicago. Hyde. Exactly. So for any non-Chicagoans listening, it's a very famous <laughs> Chicago neighborhood where Obama and the University of Chicago and the Obama Foundation are all located. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. yes. <laughs> and and I will say Valois. Valois is great. If you're ever in the area, come and get some pancakes. It is a go-to spot. One of the best diners in the city. Anyways, so all of this is happening and we we do eventually get paired up with an epidemiologist, Dr. Emily Landon from the University of Chicago. And she's done some like really great work with, I don't know, uh, Governor J.B. Pritzker and has even worked with like the Chicago Symphony on how to like navigate their COVID oh, strategies, which yeah is its own its own nightmare thing. I just that I immediately yeah. pictured people like blowing air into instruments, and I was exactly. like, oh wow, yeah. Exactly. Just when you think it's like we're all in this together, you're like, nope, that's an extra level. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So she's so she has like a pretty lengthy list of like things that she's accomplished during this time, and so we get paired up with her and she's been such a great resource for us in terms of the science and like in knowing, you know, here's when we may see cases rise. Here's when we can probably bring people back. Here's when we need to start masking again. Here's when we can remove masks. And so we check in with her like every probably couple of months now, just to make sure that, you know, if there's a new wave that's rising, do we need to do anything different? Again, we've been very conservative. Like we still require masks in the offices unless you're like by yourself and a lot of it is just because our staff have noted for us that they feel more comfortable just having mm-hmm. these additional you know while while it may feel uncomfortable like in the moment ultimately it's like for the greater good yeah and keeping like the rest of our staff safe so yeah it's been a really interesting whirlwind of us kind of being like makeshift dr fauci's um, <laughs> and trying to figure out a lot of I don't know, science, but I will say that, I don't know, the exciting piece is that this kind of did a massive reset of what like workplace operations should and could look like and how to like, I don't know, I I think communicating with staff just became such a bigger piece of the operations puzzle during this 
and really engaging sorry, stuff. Could you say that again? Oh, sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, that's like uh, so real, you know, like yeah. we've all had Alexa or Siri or, you know, an Apple watch <laughs> jump in. I love that. But yes, like, no, I agree with you. I feel like staff surveys used to be like, you know, something you did once or twice a year. And exactly. It was yeah. just, I don't know, not that it wasn't thoughtful, but not to the same degree it is now where it really is, I think, a little bit more about like psychological safety and stuff. Um, yes. And like, yeah. how do we... Hopefully, and I'm really optimistic and hopeful that some of that will carry into the other stuff we've been talking around around like crafting belonging, particularly for people who have been traditionally excluded or forgotten about in a workplace. So I'm glad that you, as someone who is like closer to that part of the industry, is is seeing that firsthand. Yeah, it's been interesting to see. And I think that there's still a lot to be learned. You know, we don't have, we maybe have two years of data, if that, right? (laughs) And so even when I've joined different conference calls to just talk about hybrid remote work and what the new Corona normal workplace looks like, no one has it figured out. And everyone is still trying to, you know, decide, is it two days in the office? Is it as Mm -hmm. needed? You know, do we need to require people to come in? And I think if there's any advice I can like impart on folks, Mm -hmm. like kind of navigating this as well, it's just keep in touch with your staff. Like it's, it's been the biggest help for us. We have a really, really good pulse on what staff do and don't feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while, you know, the thoughts of our leadership do matter, they are also willing to like really listen to the rest of our staff as well. And like with them and the guidance that staff feedback has given us, I think that we're better able to make decisions for the long term that, you know, just will engage staff appropriately and like really make them feel like they like have a reason to come back into the office. And I think yeah. that's the biggest, like that's the biggest like trouble right now. Right. Like I, I also feel this of like, I need to have a reason to be on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the best leaders have definitely kind of started figuring that out. Like it is, we want to have folks on site once a month because we're going to have like one large staff brainstorm session and you know that is how we're using our time we're going to be creative with it or we're going to be collaborative with it and so it looks different for everyone but I think the best leaders like do keep a pulse on on how staff are feeling and like what they feel comfortable in doing when they're when they're in the office yeah and not just defaulting to like we need a reason to not be in the office right like I think that has shifted exactly. a little bit. Yeah. 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 Super interesting. Well, I guess maybe to note I would love to end on is yeah. what advice would you give to someone who wants to do ops work like you do? Yeah. Oh man. Lean into the ambiguity. <laughs> like there's great advice. Yeah. Just lean into it. I think the reason I am at where I am now is because I've just said yes to a lot of you things. raised your hand a lot like that's definitely something raising... I've learned from your story you know yeah like, the power of raising your hand <laughs> exactly yeah I raised my hand a lot I well I'm sure I got like annoyed or frustrated with things like I kind of just like what's the there's a terminology that like one of my coworkers uses and it's like mm-hmm. be a duck right like you're you <laughs> I don't know... think I've heard this but I like it already yeah okay, I, I love it the uh-huh. first time I heard it was for like one of the Obama Foundation summits. And she's like, you know, everything may be going crazy and like your feet may be paddling like crazy underneath you. But on top, you look like you're gliding oh, right. and like everything is smooth sailing. And I think that operations folks in general, like we are, we're ducks. Like we're mm-hmm. really good at being ducks. Like we, <laughs> yeah. we know the chaos, but we also know how to put our best foot forward and like 
we don't just keep swimming, right? You know, to quote another a lovely a Disney movie there, you know, like just keep swimming. Yeah. <laughs> just keep swimming. And it's yeah, I and raise your hand. And raise your hand. Lean into the ambiguity. Okay. Yeah, lean into it. Things are gonna go wrong, but also things are gonna go right sometimes. And that's when it's gonna feel feel amazing. But yeah, I feel like those three pieces of advice, you can go far with that. And you know, on the flip side, I always like to ask too, like, what are you working on this year that Mm. you're trying to learn or get better at? Like that if people are experts on, they should reach out to you. Oh man. So I think I've mentioned this a few times. We are at the point where we're really starting to scale over the Mm -hmm. next few years. I think we're about to double in size in the next uh-huh. year. So and I, I love when we hit those like periods of growth. I think that's what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. But this has seemed much more different because we have so many different people from different industries, different generations. And so I think what I would love in terms of like resources or feedback mm-hmm. or anything, Carl, I know you also have like a lot of thoughts on onboarding. So oh, I sure do. Like- <laughs> so we can um, definitely talk about that. <laughs> But it's like resource creation, documentation, just like the whole onboarding process. I think we're, we have it. And I think people really enjoy our onboarding, but it's like once they're done with their first week, how are you setting everyone up for success? And how does onboarding last past that initial first week? Like how does it Uh, last those first 90 days, those first six months? Like what's the check-in cadence? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. We can definitely talk about that. And anybody else who wants to talk about it, maybe we'll have a, we'll have a separate nerd out session in the obviously Slack about, about onboarding and scaling and all those fun topics. Cause you know, there's so many of us that I feel like are are dealing with those exact issues. So yeah, came to, we came to the right place. Well, Christina, thanks so much for diving into all of this with us. This was it was so great to, you know, reconnect with you through the happy joy of the internet and to learn more about your path into tech and into nonprofits. So yeah, thanks again. And we'll include all the links, including that Chicago Diner Rack in the show yes. notes so that everyone can reach out to you. And yeah, thanks so much. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to Opsy. You can find resources and links from this episode in the show notes at opsy.org. And while you're there, I hope you'll take a second to join our free community where we share resources and opportunities that help us all level up in our ops careers. Again, that link is opsy.work. Until next time, stay opsy, friends.